Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of the War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Launch Operation Plum Blossom. This portentous phrase from the leader of the People's Republic of China signals the start of the long-anticipated military operation to reunite the PRC with the Republic of China on Taiwan. Beijing's decision to recover, quote, this rebellious island, unquote, unleashes a brutal and destructive conflict that spreads throughout the Indo-Pacific and threatens to upend world order in the summer of 2028. At least that is the scenario in the new novel by Mick Ryan, White Sun War, The Campaign for Taiwan. In itself, the publication of such a novel may not be particularly newsworthy and would perhaps compete for attention in space on bookstore shelves with many other fictional accounts of future wars. In this case, however, we at A Better Peace have taken a closer interest in the book because the author of White Sun War is one of the most influential experts on modern warfare writing in English today. When Mick Ryan speculates about why and how such a war could be fought and how it could end, it's worth our time to talk it over. His narrative offers perspectives on both the centers of political power and the tip of the military spear, discussing the technology and strategy that would shape the war and perhaps the future of the world. Thus, we are delighted to have Mick Ryan with us today on A Better Peace. Thanks, Ron. It's great to be with you. Thank you, Mick. You are a retired major general in the Australian Army a graduate of the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and the U.S. Marine Corps University Command and Staff College and School of Advanced Warfighting. In his 35-year military career, General Ryan has commanded at Platoon Squadron Regiment Task Force and Brigade level and also commanded the Australian Defense College in Canberra, Australia from 2018 to 2021. A leading commentator on the theory and practice of modern war, he is often in demand in print and audiovisual media and is the author of War Transformed, from U.S. Naval Institute books, as well as a variety of other articles. And we are delighted to have you with us today. Welcome to A Better Peace, General Ryan. Thanks, Ron. It's great to be with you. That was um, a pretty good wrap uh, to start off with. I better deliver now. <laughs> Sorry, no, no pressure, sir. I'm sure we can figure this out. So I got to ask, right, you know, you've written about the future of war. What made you decide to write a novel? Well, I'd written about it from a, um, I guess, an evidence-based, factual point of view. I mean, some of it's speculative, of course, but I also wanted to apply some of the things that I'd written about. You know, the seven trends of future war identified in War Transformed have all played out in Ukraine, and I wanted to look at it in a different scenario. And for me, the best way to do that was narrative. Um, You know, books like Ghost Fleet, Burn In, and if you look back further, Red Storm Rising, Third World War by John Hackett, have been enormously influential because they start from a basis of good knowledge about military affairs, about soldiers, sailors, airmen and women, how they think and work, and then project that slightly into the future. 
And if I could steal a phrase from Peter Singer, I wanted to blend up some vegetables in my kid's milkshake. Um, So, you know, fiction is a way to learn, uh, but it's more accessible um, and hopefully more enjoyable than reading uh, nonfiction books, which a lot of people don't really enjoy doing. Sure. Well, and that, that gets to this interesting question about when you're writing a novel, you get to control what happens, right? Especially when you're creating characters and, and, and scenes. How do you balance um, efforts at uh, verisimilitude um, with your storytelling preferences, right? Do you, uh, and I was trying to think about how to phrase this question, right? Did you, did you game out certain things like roll the dice and see how things would turn out in sort of a, a game before you decided how the story would play out? Or do you let your sort of imagination take over? One of the great things about writing a novel is you get to make stuff up. Um, you, you don't get to do that on a war college course or, or in a, a, non, a non-fiction book. Uh, but certainly, you know, I put a lot of thought into the types of characters I wanted to mm-hmm. see. I mean, I wanted to have the book reflect the contemporary military, not the one we might have known 20 or 30 years ago. And that, you know, that includes a military where you have young female officers leading combat mm-hmm. troops um right. you know there's previous generations that may not have been able to imagine that i've commanded that uh so that was important to me but also to reflect the newer kinds of organizations that have a really important role in contemporary and future war whether it's space force uh whether it's uh almost experimental kind of organizations like the marine littoral regiment or even just how institutions like the u.s army uh trying different ratios of human-machine teams in ground and air operations. So, you know, it it was about getting the right characters, but it was characters that were in the right settings, in the right kind of organisations to project uh, the military as it is and as it might be, not what we thought it was 10 years ago. Right. Well, and and you mentioned uh, books that you would compare this to. And I, I, from the moment I started reading it, I was thinking about General... General Hackett's The Third World War, because there is that sense, first of all, right, that you're not you're not a retired uh, insurance guy in Maryland like Tom Clancy, right? You're somebody who's actually commanded forces. So when you decide to write a book about possible war, there's that sense of, you know, the guy knows what he's talking about. But um, uh, we we did a podcast on, on General Hackett's book, uh, gosh, a, a year and a half ago, which any listeners could go back and find. But I... Uh, when you decided to do this, right? Did you did you see those other books as models, um, or did you did you see things to avoid in those books that you that you chose to do? Well, you know, John Hackett as a as an individual is a model. I mean, he was totally. a very accomplished soldier and leader mm-hmm. um, who wrote both fiction and nonfiction. I mean, he he wrote Third World War, but he also wrote. Other books, including the profession of arms, which is an essential reference for military people who want to understand um, where they come from and, and where they might be at the moment with their profession. So he was a he was a particular model for me because I just felt that he was a, a soldier leader scholar who was able to understand the reality of military affairs and then apply it in a fictional way to make it a more accessible. Uh, environment to people beyond the military profession. But, you know, I've also looked all the way back to the birth of military fiction, you know, the Battle of Dorking, 
um, by, you know, another engineer officer, funnily enough, uh, in the 1870s. But, you know, it it kind of uh, went through France and England and Germany and the United States and other countries in the late 1800s and the early 1900s as people tried to get their heads around the implications of new technologies and what that might mean for the world. And we're kind of in a similar era right now. There's all these new technologies, whether it's AI, uh, robotics, hypersonics, new materials, technologies, um, that we're still really struggling with when it comes to how do we use them in in a tactical situation? What are the warfighting concepts that might make the best use of them? Uh, what are the organisations, both new and evolved, that might be required that allow us to best exploit these new technologies whilst allowing humans uh, some level of continued agency in warfare? Well, and that's what I what I was especially interested by in the way that you describe the the, the way that you describe the conflict. And I promise to readers, no no spoilers here. You're going to have to read the book if you want to know how it turns out. But the you you talk a lot about technology, and I, I was I, I went back and looked at my very beat up copy of of Hackett, and, and when he was writing that book, right there there is a tendency when you place the war a few years in the future. Um, the you'll have people say, "Boy, isn't it a good thing that five years ago we did X or Y or Z?" But five years is in the past for the people in the book, but is in the future for the people reading it. And so, when you decided which technologies to talk about, how did you balance um, a sense of these are technologies that that we that we know about and we know that are, are are just being developed? And and at what point do you decide to like push it a little further in a way to advocate for greater change rather than simply describing changes that are at work? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough balance to get right. But, you know, the great thing about being a retired general is that you can push things well beyond the rice bowls of those who have specific projects or programs going. And to say, well, maybe that project or maybe that approach is a dead end rather than the start of something new. Um, so that's why, you know, I've looked at the, particularly the concept of human machine teaming over many years because uh, I, I just think we're still at the tip of the iceberg here. There's, st- there's a lot of wonderful work and experimentation going on. Uh, but the reality is uh, there's, there's a single core challenge when it comes to this, and that is that for the entirety of our history as humans on this planet, we've been tool users pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that inclu- includes military institutions. We have been tool users who've been the masters of machines. Um, we're entering an environment where we're no longer the masters of the machines, we're partners to them. And preparing people for an environment where they're equal partners with machines rather than the controllers of them is just not something that's part of our training and education systems. So it's going to require wholesale evolution in all our training, uh, our education, um, as well as our leadership models. I mean, uh, a leader of an institution that has 100 humans and 1,000 robots is probably a little different to what we've been used to. Not entirely different, and it doesn't mean we have to throw out everything, but it is going to require some thinking and evolution to our current ways of doing business. That I, that was very striking in the way you describe everything from the way that a potential amphibious landing would take place to the way that uh, uh, units would engage each other uh, on the battlefield. The use of of uh, uh, not just 
not just aerial drones, but the use of unpiloted ground vehicles and the way that they could be, they could either be set to simply roll on up towards somebody and explode, um, the way that they could actually engage in war fighting. Um, how do you feel, you know, since you're a retired general, I can ask you this, right? How do you feel that generals today and, and, and senior officers... Um, how did they react to the prospect of having to think about being partners with these kinds of new technologies? Well, I'm not sure a lot of people have actually thought deeply about it. Mm -hmm. I think that's part of the problem is, Mm -hmm. you know, generals and admirals these days don't have a lot of time for thinking. You know, they're they're extraordinarily busy men and women Mm -hmm. um, with very busy meeting schedules or um, battlefield or unit circulation schedules. And, you know, I, I did some did a study a couple of years ago on this very topic about how do we create more time for thinking for our most senior leaders instead of always acting, that there's a time for reflection and thinking. So, you know, I, I think it's important we create that time. And I also think that technological literacy has to be a really important part of uh, middle and senior leader development uh, because I'm not sure that a lot of people actually are keeping up with the really rapidly changing technological environment. And it doesn't mean we need generals that are PhDs, but it does mean we need generals who have an understanding of the strategic and policy implications of some of these new technologies and then how they might be incorporated into evolved or new warfighting concepts. Well, and it gets to that that difficult question is is when when we begin to include more say robot technology in fighting you know does that then create you know does that make war does that make war uh i won't say better or worse because those aren't terms we should use with war but does that does it make war more or less destructive if an officer feels as though well i'm not actually risking the lives of that many human beings i'm just i'm just throwing these machines into the fight um you know that that you know, they, there's always the joke, right? The you know the the uh, the young enlisted person is is told, you know, don't lose your rifle. That rifle costs more than you know. The, you know, you'll have to pay us back for that. But but how do we think about how people will use these kinds of technologies, right? Will they be will they, will they be likely to be, let's say, more profligate, or will they get nervous because they think that's an expensive piece of technology? I don't want that coming out of my retirement pay. Well, it's a bit of both, and that's probably a good thing. You don't want them to be such a low cost that the the barriers for using them are extraordinarily low. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need some barrier to the use of force, right, uh, whether yeah. it's moral barriers, legal barriers, or just practical barriers. You know, in democracies, we have pretty high standards for the use of force because we take seriously the taking of human life. I mean, it, it, it is a profound responsibility in the profession of arms to take life but do it responsibly, proportionately, discriminately and legally and ethically. And balancing all those things up as a human, um, you know, we're still going to have to work through those issues for robots as well. Killing another human, whether it's by a robot or a human, has that responsibility uh, both by military and political leaders. So there may be you know, some kind of tendency to think, well, this makes war fighting easier. Mm-hmm. But I'm not mm-hmm. sure that it will. I, I think it will still have the same fog and friction that we've always had. You know, uh, I go back to my time in Afghanistan. It was probably the most densely surveilled battle space in the history of 
uh, human warfare, and we still used to get surprised. We still couldn't see inside the minds of our adversaries. Uh, we still couldn't use that technology to change the will of our adversaries. So these are the kind of things that we're still going to have to think through regardless of the levels of technology or the numbers of robotic systems or clever algorithms that we might deploy as part of our military institutions. Sure. Well, and and when you talk about technology that has serious moral and political and legal implications, right? I have to ask about nuclear weapons. Um, there's a part of me, like I say, no spoilers, but the, the whole question of when and how would nuclear weapons, could nuclear weapons be used in a fight like this, right? Hackett famously sort of uh, you know, wiggled out of this by assuming that the, the Soviets would try one shot and then and then when there was retaliation, we'd, we, everybody would, would wake up and realize not to go any further. But how do you imagine any future war will deal with the, with the dangers of escalation? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky issue, right? I mean, Hackett actually was pretty significantly criticised for his treatment mm-hmm. of the use of nuclear weapons in the Third World War, mm-hmm. um, you know, mainly because he was projecting a kind of war where the use of nuclear weapons could be done discriminately um, and without further retaliation. Yeah. Um, I instinctively think that's probably not true. Um, you know, go back to Clausewitz about, you know, once it all starts and the emotions get involved, well, you that increases by orders of magnitude if you use nuclear weapons. I mean, if um, Honolulu gets taken out by a one megaton weapon, um, the United States is not just going to go, oh, let's all sit back and think about this. I mean, if I lived in the United States on 9-11 and, uh, you know, for a couple of years after that, the United States... Uh, was busy taking down whole countries because of that. Uh, I'm not offering a judgment on whether that was right or wrong. I'm just saying, you know, countries respond in in ways that go just beyond the pure strategic aspects of decision-making, and I think nuclear weapons are the same. Um, If we have a look at the current situation in Ukraine and Putin's threats about the use of nuclear weapons, the essential question is that he would have to ask his senior leaders is, would it change the situation enough? Um, in Russia's situation at the moment, the answer is probably no, um, because it might change the battlefield situation, but it would make Russia's strategic situation immeasurably worse and probably have NATO come in and just clear house. So, you know, I think the use of nuclear weapons is something that remains in the military doctrine of countries like the United States and Russia, as well as the six NATO countries that are provided nuclear weapons by the US, as well as Britain and France. But, you know, they, their value is more in deterrence rather than their, their battlefield value, because I, I just I just think there would be a cascading um, series of events once once you start unleashing these weapons, they're just, they're just so terrible that if you get hit by one, I can't imagine you not wanting to respond in kind at least once. Yeah, no, that's, I, 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 I was wrestling with that too when I was reading the, reading the book and thinking about that is, is, is under what circumstances would one feel backed into a corner, but how, how narrow would that corner have to be? Yeah. Um, related to that, uh, since we mentioned Ukraine a couple of times, um, did you start writing this book before or after the outbreak of war in Ukraine? I started writing it before. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I started, you know, probably uh, four or five months before just roughing it out. 
Um, but you know the 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 lessons of Ukraine certainly have influenced it. I mean, I finished it several months after uh, the invasion. You know, after the Ukrainians had pushed the Russians out of northern Ukraine, uh, and probably just before you know the Russians' eastern campaign commenced in the middle of 2022. Um, and you know that the lessons of things like logistics, of deep stocks of precision munitions of the continuing agency of humans and the importance of good leadership were always going to be themes, but um, the war in Ukraine has kind of made them more accessible because, you know, before the war, things like having large stocks of precision munitions, the importance of leadership were the kind of things we kind of went, oh, yeah, 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 and then just moved on to other topics. We're now actually seriously revisiting those kind of issues and you know that's probably one of the few positive outcomes of this war is it's forcing us to take seriously some of the old lessons of war that we've forgotten but it also reinforces to us the terrible um, humanitarian and moral costs of war and why we shouldn't uh, jump into these things without really really deep thought and consideration well and that and that gets to the, the the political questions that go into this war sort of the the circumstances under which uh say the people's republic would decide that it's not enough to threaten it's not enough to prepare for it but that they're willing to take that step and the issue of how that would play politically elsewhere um i don't think it's a spoiler to say that you 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 offer insights into what you think would be going on at the very top of the leadership of the people's republic but you don't you don't uh, have a lot of discussion at the very top of say the american or the or the um uh political system and you know there was a part of me that thinks there's a certain humility that comes with you you you're less likely to write about stuff that you know something about because <laughs> you but you're willing to speculate about areas that are themselves sort of uh uh let's say inscrutable, but, um, but how do we imagine the politics? Cause I, 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 one thing that for, especially for Australians who are listening to this is you do stick in a couple of interesting jabs at Australian <laughs> politics, right? You actually have a line about how badly prepared they, they were for the war before it started. And you note that there is the possibility of a Chinese inspired secessionist movement in Western Australia, basically through the, imp you know, it, you, the implication is, is that those same uh, Chinese extractive industries in the West, that they would influence things in Australia. And so I got to ask, right, um, are you that concerned about, about, about your countrymen? Or is this just a way, just a way for us to think about the, the various possibilities of political disagreement within the West that could happen? Oh, no, there's a certain amount of fact there, unfortunately. Uh -huh. yeah. um, and unfortunately, it's just been played out with our new strategic review that's been called the most substantial review since the Second World War when it's probably not going to result in too many changes and there's no new money. It's, it's, it's hard to transform without new money when other countries are doubling their spending like Japan and the US is increasing its so, you know, that, that, that is a real concern that's been validated by that. And, you know, our, our Western Australian state has secessionist tendencies. Uh, we have a premier there that's just returned from a trip to Beijing. Um, oh, really? In some respects, uh, with quite positive reviews of uh, his discussions there, which, you know, having state-level uh, politicians conducting foreign affairs is not something you allow in the US and, and we shouldn't be allowing it here, to be quite frank. You know, we, we probably need to look at our constitution 
in that respect. And, and you know, for me, it was just a way of saying uh, to American audiences, you need to know your enemy, but boy, you also need to understand your allies. And that's something, having worked with the US on multiple occasions over more than two decades, it's something that sometimes the US assumes away. Uh, that you just because you're on our side, you're just like us. Well, that's not always the case. And if you have a look at the Brits and the Americans in the Second World War, there was a huge amount of discrepancy and disagreement. Um, they had common values and, and, and common ends, but how they got there was often uh, arrived at through great debate. And, you know, this is kind of my way of saying to the US. Make sure you understand your allies and your friends and partners well because this is going to be a pretty tough fight if we have to do it and you can't afford to have divisions in in the alliance if you're going to fight the Chinese. Right. Well, and and that that is that that looms over the book, right? It looms over the question of how would the Taiwanese respond? To what extent would a PRC decision to invade Taiwan would um, would essentially you know, that perhaps the the Chinese would go into the war assuming that the, that some section of the population of Taiwan would welcome the uh, People's Republic, but the moment that the first shots are fired, right, years and years of careful diplomacy and political rhetoric about peaceful transition would be thrown out the window, which gets back to that idea of you know do you what circumstances do you think it would take for a, a leadership in Beijing to decide we can't wait any longer. Um, we have to act now. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, there's a couple of things uh, to unpack there. Uh, firstly, the leadership in Beijing won't be making any decision. It will be the president. Um, you know, having just come back from a week in Taiwan, speaking to people at the deputy and, and ministerial level there, as well as think tanks and and other institutions, you know, the, the strong view, the view there is since the 20th Party Congress, Xi has even narrowed the echo chamber uh, around him and the decision-making is almost exclusively his province. Um, And there is deep concern that in seeking a fourth term, he will do something about Taiwan to to justify that. Uh, The second issue you raised is about people and their will to fight. Um, Certainly there are polls And, you know, Taiwanese officials, you know, said to us, you know, a certain percentage of this country still sees themselves as Chinese in in the PRC version of China, not in, you know, China as the Taiwanese see it, as a democratic nation. Um, But at the same time, we had that in Ukraine, right? Um, You know, there was a large proportion of the population who spoke Russian. In fact, I shared a carriage with a couple of people who were Russian speakers with Russian relatives before the invasion on my last trip to Ukraine, and that changed overnight. Indeed, in my interviews with Ukrainian government officials up to, once again, ministerial level, they were all shocked just how much the Ukrainian people stood up after the invasion occurred. Uh, My suspicion is you'll see something the same in Taiwan if push comes to shove. Um, you know, there is no way the people of Taiwan could live the life they live now under the People's Republic of China. It's it's unthinkable, and it would not be a small difference. There might be a common language, but, boy, the political systems are extraordinarily different. Um, you know, one's free and one's not. 
And I think we would see the Taiwanese people stand up as I've portrayed in this book. Right. Well, and because and I think about that too, right, that, the, that perhaps 15 years ago, um, one, one could start to talk about you know, some sort of peaceful coming together. But after Hong Kong, uh, the, the way that the, way that the, that the Xi government has cracked down on, on Hong Kong, it's hard to believe those promises of you know, one people, two systems or, or, or whatever. And so that is, that is an interesting question. And that, but then we get to the, um, where we just have a few minutes left, but I, uh, the, the, the question of the, the alliance politics of such a war. That, um, you know, I think one of the real paradoxes is for the Chinese to decide, for, for Beijing, let's say, to decide to, or she personally, to decide to go to war would have to be built around an idea that they could not get what they wanted without going to war. And um, so the issue is, would would more, you know, better cooperation, better planning, better sort of overt willingness to stand up to a military action, would that be more likely to deter such an action or would it speed up Xi's timetable that he has to act before whatever important changes take place? Yeah, that's the the great question, isn't it? And I guess I make it easier in this novel where I said it in a US election year where um, you know US government is distracted um, as well as some uh, natural catastrophes, and the Chinese take that as a sign that the US lacks the political or physical will to intervene. Um, and, you know, we, we need to be very careful about these things, even when politics is at its most bitterly divided. There's still a requirement for the United States to project um, will uh, and have military and economic and diplomatic deterrence postures uh, so that Xi and his um, most senior advisors wake up every morning and think, not today. And every day we can push that up is a good thing, right? Uh, because a war over Taiwan would not just be catastrophic for the people of Taiwan, it would be catastrophic for everyone in the Asia-Pacific. I mean, Taiwan as a high-tech manufacturing hub has global significance. Uh, its relationship with economic relationship with China also has a global significance. That would disappear. And a huge amount of world trade goes to the east and west of Taiwan on its way to and from ports in Japan, China and other places. Um, so, you know, uh, deterrence, and it has to be led by the US. I mean, it's it's the big player globally and regionally, but contributions by other countries will be important, noting that there is not and unlikely to be in the future an Asian version of NATO. So we need different regional security architectures and agreements and relationships to underpin that deterrence posture. Right. Well, and and the final big question for this conversation, right? One of the implications that comes out of reading this book is an awareness that the, let's say, the Taiwan question is part of a larger question of the People's Republic of China's place in the world, the People's Republic of China's relationship with the United States and the current international system. And, you know, one puts the book down with an awareness that this is not something that would be resolved easily even if there were a war on Taiwan, mm. because it would there would still be big questions to be resolved. And 
So when you th- when, if you're advising future strategists, let's say I was able to get you to come back to Carlisle, come out to Carlisle to talk to our students, how should strategists think about this this kind of open ended question, right? That the competition would go on even if there was a burst of fighting that eventually comes to an end. How do we manage that kind of long open ended competition? Well, this is something uh, you know I've been thinking about for Ukraine. My next book is all about uh, lessons from Ukraine and. Um, I've got a whole chapter on the theory of victory for Ukraine and as it would be for Taiwan, for Ukraine, the theory of victory cannot just be uh, winning the war. I mean, you have to win the peace. Um, So even as soldiers, we have to have an eye to not just winning militarily, but how do you prepare for, how do you undertake those things that provide the foundation for winning the peace, whether it's justice, whether it's reconstruction, whether it's societal integration, whether it's long-term security guarantees. So, you know, we need to be about sustainable solutions where a society can move past the war bit and build prosperity, uh, whilst at the same time understanding it has to ensure its national security requirements. Right. Well, and trying to think about what conflicts would mean and how we can avoid them, how we can make sure that it's not today um, and put it off, but then how we can be prepared if they do come or when they do come is uh, that's the challenge for strategists. And I think strategists would probably find it very interesting to take a look at White Sun War the campaign for Taiwan by General McRyan. I hope uh, this conversation uh, has uh, piqued your curiosity. It is available in bookstores now. General Ryan, thanks so much for joining us on A Better Peace to talk about your work. Thanks, Ron. It's been great to talk with you today. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. Send us your suggestions for future programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Please take a moment uh, and subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice because with conversations like this, how could you not want to subscribe to A Better Peace? And after you have subscribed, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can find out about us. We're always interested in growing this community for conversations like this one. And even if this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you next time. So until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.